Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, we are back here in the podcast room in the world headquarters. 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 Man, so far off to a bad start on this one, but we are in the world headquarters <laughs> yes. of Her and Him here in beautiful, historic Corona, California. The birds are tweeting, the babies are sleeping, there are planes flying overhead, and there are some speed racers right outside on the street just like trying to show us how loud their engines are. It's a wonderful time to record a podcast. It's a wonderful time to be alive, and here we are. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we were <laughs> getting ready to come back into podcast land after our short hiatus, we sent out on our social media uh, asking you guys what questions you had, what topics you wanted to talk about, because we definitely have things that le- we like to talk about, but Tamara always makes fun of me because she says I get on soapboxes, and she says, nobody cares about the things that you're talking about. You just talk and talk and talk and talk, and nobody cares. I don't think that's how I sound, and you also make me sound like I'm really mean. So I don't sound like that, and I don't talk like that. I mean... That's rude. your truth, but you're going to have to <laughs> take a look in the mirror. Anyways, so we sent it out on our social media what you guys want to hear, and you did not disappoint with your questions. There's some pretty challenging questions that you guys sent our way. We're not going to answer all of them on the podcast. They might become their own like full episode at some point or maybe even a blog, just depending on the best way to answer the question. Yeah, but we wanted to take at least one episode and kind of rapid fire answer a few of them so we can kind of answer them with at least some kind of immediacy. And you're not waiting like six or eight weeks for the question that you asked. And so this is our first ever Hearn Him Podcast mailbag episode. Woohoo! And do you like that that mailbag theme music? I feel like we should I've just keep playing this. I've never heard music that makes me think of mailbag time. Other than this music. I feel like we should just play it on a loop for the rest of the episode. We might lose listeners, so maybe let's not. I don't not. know. I see the way your shoulders are moving. And you're, oh, yeah. you're dancing over there with your black tee. <laughs> like, this is the jam. I mean, it's better than the shows I'm normally listening to and the songs that come from those shows. So, <laughs> here we are. All right. Well, our first mailbag question And this is related to the pandemic, as is just about everything in life these days is related to the pandemic. But this is a really good question. This person asks, how may or should the way we do church change as a result of the pandemic? So there's kind of two parts to that question. Hmm. How can we change church? Like, how, In what ways do we have permission to change church post-pandemic? And what ways should we absolutely change church in a post-pandemic world? What a great question. Well, what do you think? I have no idea in regards to how should it change. I think we're certainly in a time where culture is shifting and the pandemic has forced us to shift what we do as a church. And we're certainly going to see change. I'm positive a lot of people want to say, let's just go back to the way that it was. But I don't think we can. I don't think church can just remain what it was after we've been in the place we've been in for almost a year now. Like it's just going to naturally change. And online church has become more acceptable. And I think we're going to continue to see that trend that it's just going to be commonplace now that 
just about every church is going to be doing something online. Where pre-pandemic, there was a lot of debate over whether or not a service should be made available online or not. Yeah, a lot of people changed their theology on that one real quick. Right, because there was no other way. And I think what's most important that we need to remember is it's not necessarily about showing up on a Sunday morning. That's never been what church has been about in regards to the way that Jesus saw the body of Christ coming together and being the body of Christ. It wasn't about get in your car, load the kids in, show up on Sunday morning, and then leave versus online. The idea has always been community and coming together. And I think we need to continue to rethink that in the culture we're living in. How does church look like the way Jesus wanted it to look in terms of reaching people and connecting people with the gospel? Yeah. And so I think definitely online should be a place that we're thinking of how to do ministry online rather than how do we use online? How do we use social media to promote our in-person ministry? Now, we can still use it in that regard, but I think a lot of people are asking, how can we use it as ministry rather than using it to point to, hey, come to the big box where we have music and, you know, we only meet once a week where we can be connected on a continual basis. And I think, too, so that that was a should, how should it change? Mm. I think a, how may it change? I think... There may be room to be creative about more hybrid models of church where the in-person experience is part of the experience, but what are ways that we can hang on to some of the digital aspects that have really been useful during this time, even with regard to like small groups, Mm -hmm. hybrid small groups, Zoom groups that meet in person sometimes, like are there times when... Uh, we lean into online, even though we don't necessarily need to, but we found that it's been really convenient at keeping us connected without having to all drive to the same space at the same time and and do it that way. Yeah. And I I think we can't be afraid of change with regards to the church. And that's hard because we've been doing this model of church for quite some time and it's the only model of church that we know, but it's certainly is not the only model that has ever existed. It's continued to change. And the early church, they were house churches. And they felt a lot more like small groups than they did even what we understand church to be on a Sunday morning. And so church itself has continued to change in the way that it looks, in the actual way that it's carried out. And we don't do church the way that it originally began And so there is liberty and there is room for it to change its model. And we have to be open to that and not so bound by the institution that's been created because it's the only thing we've ever known. Because history shows it's not the only thing that's ever existed. Yeah, and I think the the one key that you keep hitting on, or the two keys, one is adaptability to what the world looks like, and two is focusing on the relational over the, I guess, programmatic. And that's always been true, um, but we've been able to get away with it a lot more. Just if our programs were really good, then we could get away with neglecting the relational aspects and still be okay. Whereas I think after the pandemic, that's going to be less the case because, you know, people are out of the habit of getting up on a Sunday morning and going Mm. to church. And it's hard to convince them to come back in a lot of ways unless there's that really strong relational connection 
that they know that they're going to get from a, a, an experience with your church. Yeah. And so we're not saying by any means to neglect the in-person and, you know, we don't even need to see each other at all anymore. That's certainly not what we're saying, but we do believe that there is opportunity and room for us to rethink the church model. And unfortunately that has come to pass because it's been forced upon us. And oftentimes I think that's the way that it goes because even when Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples to go and share about him from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then you read, what did they do? They didn't even leave Jerusalem. They didn't go anywhere until they were forced. And so I think there's some force happening, a force change that's happening right now. And I have no idea what that's going to look like for us. But we can't deny change is inevitable because of what's been forced upon us. That's true. You got to force me to do a lot of stuff that I, I should be doing. I'm not going to do it by my free will. You got <laughs> you got to push me. I can, I can vouch to that. <laughs> well, that was a good question, and um, I don't know if that was a good answer, but <laughs> it's the only one we got. Okay, our next question. We've actually gotten this question from a couple of different people. And it's an important question. It's a nice, easy, softball question for you, Tamara. I'll let you kind of kick it off. When is divorce okay? Yeah, nice, easy question. Thank you. That was really kind of you to let me start there. Um, So the topic of divorce has come up from a lot of Christians. And I think initially I was kind of surprised because of the... Uh, theological background that I come from and it was just absolutely off limits to divorce anyone outside of the parameters laid in scripture. And so I just thought that was common understanding among all Christians, like divorce equals no (laughs) for the most part. And we're certainly not going to say much different outside of really what we need to understand in scripture and In cases of adultery, so cheating, if your spouse cheats on you, if there's abuse, neglect, or abandonment, we see all of those as grounds for divorce within scripture. And anything outside of that, we don't see grounds for divorce. We actually see scripture urging us to stay within that relationship, that covenant that you have created between husband and wife. And it's not even just a matter of, well, I don't like them anymore, or they're not fitting me anymore, or they've grown in a different direction than I've grown, or there's a lot of things and there's a lot of hard things. It's not to say these are all just, oh, my feelings have changed. There are some certain hard things that you're going to have to endure within your marriage um, that you might think, well, this certainly must be grounds for divorce because this just isn't working. But from a biblical perspective, we just don't see that. Yeah, and I actually grew up with an even more conservative understanding of divorce than maybe even you did because I was brought up and raised up to believe that unless your spouse cheats on you, you there is no biblical grounds for divorce. And so, so in that framework, not even abuse, neglect, wow. abandonment— was grounds for divorce. And so I'd I'd like to clear that up a little bit because I think that comes from a bad reading of Scripture Mm because Jesus said, you know, quote, 
unless uh, it's for reasons of marital unfaithfulness, i.e., just like they cheated on you, then then there's there's no grounds for divorce. And if you get divorced and remarried, then you are committing adultery. You are cheating on your spouse that you divorce. And so from that verse alone, if you just take that, then there's no other grounds and you're trapped. And that reading of that scripture has trapped a lot of people, particularly a lot of women, in abusive relationships. And there's been a lot of toxicness in the church because of that, because there'll be, you know, a male pastor basically telling a woman that she needs to stay in relationship with her abuser because the Bible doesn't allow for divorce. And so I'd like to take a couple minutes to take a closer look at that verse. Yeah. No, I think that's a great idea Um, because I had always understood abuse was grounds for divorce. Like, why would Jesus force you to stay in a relationship where you are being abused? That goes against verbatim. That that goes against who Jesus is. Right. No, I think it's good that we kind of clarify that. Yeah. So when Jesus said that, he was actually answering a question from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him what the grounds were for divorce. Now, in the Old Testament, there uh, was a number of grounds for divorce. And the the laws were written to actually protect women because women's had, women's, women had no recourse if they were in a bad marriage. Mm. They, they, they could take any kind of steps. And so there were laws in the Old Testament that said, hey, if a man is unable or unwilling to provide food, shelter, conjugal rights to his wife, then he must write her a certificate of divorce so that she can be set free from that and go back to either her father's house or she could remarry someone who could actually care for those things because it was often through the the men, the patriarchy, that women were enfranchised. And so there was a protection there. Then there was another verse that said, if a man finds something indecent about his wife, then rather than abandoning her or abusing her, he ought to offer her a certificate of divorce. So there's two groups of Pharisees that come to Jesus, and there's this dispute. What does it mean that he finds something indecent in his wife? Does that mean that she cheated on him? Or that she burnt the toast and I'm really mad at her. Yeah, and I just found that so indecent. Like, Mm -hmm. she started to get a little bit of hair on her upper lip, and I found that indecent. Or she talked back to me, and I found that indecent. Or I just don't want to be with her anymore, and so I find her indecent. Is that the proper understanding of that? Or is that indecency talking about infidelity? And Jesus came back and he said, what that's talking about is infidelity. You can't just divorce your wife for any old reason. And so he wasn't negating that divorce was still acceptable undergrounds of abuse, neglect, abandonment, those kinds of things. It was just in regard to this specific question, can you divorce your wife for any old reason? Or is that word indecency referring to infidelity? And so that's the meaning of that. And even Paul gives more reasons for divorce in First Corinthians, like if your spouse is an unbeliever, you come to faith, and then they don't want to be married to you anymore because you're a follower of Jesus. He says, let them, let them go in peace, and you're free. And so there are a number of situations where divorce is permissible. It's never what God wants, hmm. but 
there are some instances where it's allowable. Right. But I don't think those instances are as commonplace as divorces among Christians. Certainly. So it's important to see the reasons that are explained in scripture. And if you are finding yourself in a situation where you're weighing divorce, you certainly should be looking to scripture for wisdom. And again, I I don't want to make light and not be empathetic to people that are in some really hard situations right now that might not be issues of infidelity or abuse or neglect, but they're just some really hard situations. So we're not going to be those Christians that just kind of write off what you're experiencing and say it's not hard. Well, don't get divorced. Suck it up and deal with it. That's certainly not the answer either. But we do need to be mindful of what Jesus has laid out for us and really understanding it's not that he wants us to live these hard and difficult lives. It's that this really is for the betterment of us. And it really is the life that he is longing for us to live in him. And that does consist of staying married if it's not within the reasons that are laid in scripture. Yeah. And so what we have is a pretty conservative view. It's a hard view, but I think it's, it's the right view. And I think it's what, it's what God wants. Jesus said, what, what God has brought together, let not man tear asunder. And so there's something divine about the union between husband and wife. And so we want to make every effort to honor that. And where there is infidelity, abuse, abandonment, it's permissible to divorce. But again, it's it's more of a last resort than something we should be looking to as a solution. Right. Yeah. So thank you for that difficult question. Um, and again, we hope that was a helpful answer and that we didn't sound too harsh in our answer as we want to stay true to scripture, but we also want to continue to be empathetic for people who are in difficult situations. Yes. Yeah. I think those are two kind of different conversations. Like what can we do to be empathetic and help a person in a struggling marriage versus the kind of more theological question of when do we think you should divorce? Like when would we recommend that? Or when would we say, Hey, Mm -hmm. we're not going to fault you at all. And God won't fault you. And no one will fault you if you pursue a divorce in this situation. Mm And to add to that, sorry, if you have divorced, like there is still forgiveness through Jesus. And I think that's important too, because if you're listening and you've, you've been divorced before and now you're thinking, wow, I am now, I have this huge weight over my head now because now we understand scripture um, and it wasn't permissible Uh, There is forgiveness and redemption in Jesus, if that's something that you've already done. Yeah, that's an important thing to say, too. And if there's other important things that we forgot to say, let us know with the follow-up question. Yeah, Yeah. we are sorry ahead of time, and please send a follow-up question. We'd be happy to answer it. Yeah, definitely. Well, our next easy question (laughs) is, should worship songs by theologically ill churches be used in our churches? Meaning, should we sing songs that were written by groups or churches that we perceive to be theologically ill? Uh, And this person gave examples of Bethel, Elevation, and Hillsong, but they said, but mostly Bethel. 
because that's the one that they were concerned with. Should we be singing these songs? So in regards to songs in general, regardless of where they came from, so not using these specific churches as examples, but if you come across a song that is theologically inaccurate, you should not be singing that song. <laughs> so if if the song in and of itself, as you read the lyrics and listen to it, has inerrancies or flaws theologically or are just completely heretical. Wait, question before you go any further. Unforeseen or sloppy wet? Oh, goodness. This is a theological test right now. No, it's not. This is not. So I grew up singing it as sloppy wet kids. That's because you grew up in a charismatic <laughs> church. I grew up as unforeseen because it was No one wants chosen. a sloppy yeah, wet no. kiss. I mean, Silas is the king of sloppy wet kisses. So. Oh, just open mouth, tongue. He doesn't know how. <laughs> Bless his soul. So in case you have no idea what we're talking about, there is a song out there. What is that song called? He loves us. Is that what the oh, song's called? Or is that, those are the lyrics. Us. I think so. You just say that forever. He loves us, yeah. And then, and it, then you give someone a sloppy wet kiss and it's all and good. Then, <laughs> heaven meets earth with a sloppy wet kiss. Yeah, or, like why is God trying to mack me? Okay. Well, our conversation is quickly digressing. I was really trying to talk about something. So in regards to songs that are theologically inaccurate, no, the answer is no. You should not be singing those in a Sunday worship setting. You should not be singing them at all (laughs) because if it's a form of worship and it's not theologically correct, like you shouldn't even be singing them. What about songs that are theologically accurate, but they're from churches that you perceived to have a lot of theological inaccuracies in their teachings. So this is probably where we are going to not agree with everyone. If that song has no issues in and of itself, apart from who wrote it or where it came from, I don't think there's any issues singing that song within your church. That's not to say that you support that church that has other theological issues. Like let's say it's their statement of faith the song has nothing to do with anything in their statement of faith. And there's no issues within that song in and of itself. I don't think there's any issue singing that song because if it's truthful, it's truthful regardless of where it came from. And I know we live in a culture that is constantly trying to cancel one another out. And I think that feeds into it is like, oh, even though there's absolutely nothing wrong with this song, we're not going to sing it because of who it came from. And that's a problem because even within the larger church, we we shouldn't be so quick to wage wars against one another. And certainly there are going to be other churches out there that you don't agree with some of their theological stances. And that's probably why you don't go there. So it's okay for us to not agree with other denominations and other churches Yes, I understand there are some that are probably leaning towards heretical teaching. So that's a problem. But if the song you're singing is not, I don't think we need to create issues that don't exist. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I don't have time to like research every song, where it came from, who wrote it. Like sometimes I hear a song like, wow, that's a really good song. I like it. And I have some more conservative people that That's I'm because around. because you're a heretic. No, yeah. They're like, oh, you like that song. Only do heretics you know, like that song. Do you know who wrote that? I was like, no, I have no idea who wrote it. 
And then they tell me, and I'm like, oh, okay. So what? Did like, you know that in 1997 yeah. they were quoted as saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so it just it gets so messy as we want to uncover and dig up people's failures. And again, there is opportunity for correction and it's not to say let's let heretics be heretics and who cares. But I think that we're drawing lines where they don't need to be drawn. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I do think we need to be wary of being so enthusiastic about going heretic hunting and following pastors and following church leaders who are very enthusiastic about heretic hunting, nitpicking. Uh, I saw this 10-minute video that was a breakdown of uh, Elevation's song, The Blessing. And it was so, like, nitpicky. And they were just tearing it apart. And he actually said at one point in the video, he was like, I don't know, I just can't even take anything from Furtick seriously. It's already tainted having come from him. And what was ironic about that song is like 80% of the lyrics are direct quotations from scripture. So even if, even if you directly quote scripture in a song, if you're Stephen Furtick, it's a heretical song. Mm. And so that's just kind of a toxic culture. That's cancel culture. And a lot of those same people that go heretic hunting will say that cancel culture is toxic. And yet then do this kind of nitpicky canceling out, of other people. So I think we need to be really wary of heretic hunting. I mean, the, the churches that were mentioned, mentioned, say, is Elevation or Hillsong or Bethel. There are disagreements that I have with the teachings in those churches on a sliding scale. I won't tell you, you know, right. from yeah. best to worst. There are, there are you know, some that we have. Agreement mm, to disagreement. Yeah. But I mean, let's be honest. Th- there is no pastor, there is no preacher who 100% of the time I say, yes. I theologically agree with every single thing that you're saying. I agree with every interpretation that you make of the text. Mm-hmm. I agree with every statement that you've ever made. Even like even like my own pastor. Sometimes I'm sitting there in the back row going, hmm, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I would say it that way. Or like, oh, I don't know. I think I would interpret that verse a little bit differently. And that's okay. I'm not going to walk up to him and nitpick him every time. No. I mean, and it's, part of it's just the way that I think. I, I pull things apart and... You know, what I do is, you know, exegesis and theology. And so that's what I do is I'm constantly evaluating that. But it's no warrant to be toxic and to say, like, mm. I think you're wrong on this. And because of that, you're you're canceled. Now, there are some dividing lines. Certainly. But I think there are far less dividing lines than we divide on. Yeah, we want to draw way too many lines. Right. Like, let's draw less lines and draw more circles. <laughs> let's all come oh, gosh. to okay. the center. Uh, I... If everybody's all right, hopefully that answered. Hopefully that answered your question. Uh, the next question that we got, which I think would be great for you, Dale, to kind of start answering, is what does it look like to do ministry apart from it being your actual job? Yeah, this is a question that's pretty relevant to me because I was a full time pastor for a while. Basically, you know, most of my adult life, that's what I had been doing, and for the past year or two, um, I haven't been in that position. And so ministry has looked differently for me. And I think uh, a couple of things is just continuing to serve the church. You know, you don't have to be on payroll to serve the church. So you have gifts. Um, God gives spiritual gifts to everybody. And so finding ways to serve the church with those gifts. And I think that comes in a couple of different dimensions. One is your local church. Your local church has needs. Your local church has holes to fill. Maybe some of those holes are things that you really like doing. Maybe some of those holes are things that you kind of tolerate, but you're good at. 
I think whatever those holes are, where it lines up with your gifts, you have a, an obligation to your local church to serve in those ways. I think also on a more global scale, your gifts that you have, you, you are the church. Like we are the church wherever we go because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to use those gifts to serve people anywhere that we go, whether those are our neighbors, our family members, our friends, uh, people in our small group. We just need to use those gifts wherever we, we find use for them. And just kind of like just this posture of life that there are people who go to church looking to be served, and those people suck. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sorry, that was rude, but you do. You suck. And it's like oh, really unfortunate that if you are someone who has the Holy Spirit who has transformed them, mm. and you don't want to be on the mission to see that transformation yep. for somebody else— it's just a really bad culture that we see it, yeah. uh, just rampant in a lot of our, our churches. And so we can identify that and say, wow, that, that's really unhelpful. And so if the opposite of that is having a servant mindset, then we just need to have that mindset not only with regard to our organized church, but being the church wherever we go. Yeah, and that can look like you even just serving your friends, your community, and, and those are ministry aspects of your life. And so it doesn't have to necessarily be on a Sunday morning, I am part of children's ministry or I'm part of ushering or I'm part of whatever other element there is on the Sunday morning. Um, but you can find opportunities to minister wherever you are. And we have certainly seen that happen differently in our season of life right now than it used to. It used to be a very uh, for formalized organizational form of ministry that we were in. And now we're finding opportunities in ministry that look very different than they used to for us. Yeah, and I think it's okay to have that more organic approach to things. Where we, we don't have to be in the box of like, oh, I'm leader of this ministry, or I have this title, or I have this position, whether volunteer or paid within the organization, that we can think of spiritual leadership in more relational, organic terms. Even going back to our first question, how is it, things going to change after the pandemic? We need to think more in those relational, organic terms. And so this question is a really good question because the way we do ministry needs to flow into those those aspects as well. Cool. So our next question and this is a really good question, too. This is an important question. What do churches need from their members right now? What do pastors need from the people in their churches? Pastors need to be supported right now. And your leaders of your church need to be supported. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that they're doing 100% of the time. Or even fully agree with the way that they are handling the many things that are thrown at them right now. It just means that you need to be supportive and you need to have their back. They're not always going to make decisions that you agree with and you can still find ways to be supportive of them. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be, you know, falsely cheering them on <laughs> in regards to a decision that you don't agree with, but it, it doesn't mean that you undermine what they're doing or you find a group of people to all agree with you and disagree with them. Like there's, there's a lot of harmful things that you could be doing right now to your leaders. And that's what they don't need right now. So the best thing that you can do for your church is really to be supportive of your leaders um, in whatever ways you conscientiously can. 
support them. Yeah, and I think this is super important being such a divided time regarding the pandemic. Now, you may be going to a church where your pastor has decided, hey, we're going to start opening up for services. You may be at a church where they're not and you're still online. I think if you fall on the other side of the conversation from your pastor, I think that's okay. Like, that's okay that you fall on the other side of that. Just don't be a thorn in, in your mm-hmm. leader's side about it. You know what I mean? Like, say your, your church right. is meeting in person and you don't agree with that. That's okay. Don't come. You can even tell your pastor, because I believe that it's not safe, I'm not going to come. But then tell them, but I still support you. Right. You can still be part of that church. You can still be supportive. You can still find other ways to be involved and to minister. So you don't have to cancel your whole church. <laughs> you don't have to cancel your pastor because of this one thing that you don't agree with. You can still be supportive of your pastor and your leader, even if there is a particular issue that you don't agree with. And again, as long as it's not a first tier theological issue like that, then you probably should leave. Like if they're saying, I don't know if I believe the Bible anymore. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's not what we're that's, talking. that's a tier one issue. Right. <laughs> and I think to realizing that this whole like pandemic, should we open? Should we not open? How do I feel about that? What are my moral stands on that? What are my theological stands on that? Just keep in perspective, like a year from now, it's all going to be moot point anyways, because this pandemic will eventually kind of subside Things will eventually start to open back up. And so just kind of think about what relationship you want to have with your church and with your pastor after that. Is it worth blowing up your relationship with your church or with your pastor over this issue when this issue is going to be gone like a year from now? And I don't think it is. And so I I think what your pastors need from you, what your churches need from you, is to serve any way you can right now you know, to the best of your ability and to be supportive. I think that's, that's all we can do. Be supportive with how you speak about them, how you speak to them, how you give, how you serve, just be supportive in all those things. I think that's the number one thing that you can do for your church and for your church leaders. Well, we have one more question and this is a really good one too. This is more of a relational question than it is a, a church question, but what is the difference between being compassionate and being an enabler? That is a really good question. And sometimes they feel like they can be one and the same because as you're trying to be compassionate and empathetic towards someone, you might realize maybe I'm enabling them now and maybe I've now crossed the line of compassion and and stepped into the territory of enabling. And it's not a black and white answer for every situation. I think you can continue to weigh this question of compassion versus enabling case by case. And there's certainly been many experiences in my life that have been hard, hard to analyze. Am I being compassionate or am I enabling someone? And I specifically had a family member who was addicted to drugs. And for the longest, I was the one in the family who was like, no, she's not on drugs you guys just aren't being nice to her. You're not believing her. Like something's wrong with her. And I I just like bought into everything. And I was really mad at other members of my family for not being empathetic and compassionate towards her when they were all reading the room (laughs) and I wasn't. Um, And so that was hard for me as 
a family member who, who loved this family member. But I quickly realized that I had crossed the line of being compassionate and stepped into the territory of enabling because every time she reached out to me for help, it ended up leading her to like stepping right back into what she was already in before she came to me. And so largely, I think you have to weigh the situation and you have to see, is my compassion leading them back into the thing that they're struggling with? And usually when it comes to enabling, it's usually some kind of an addiction or it's some kind of abuse or it's always something toxic. And so if that toxic lifestyle that they're living continues to grow and maybe they're even falling deeper into it after they come to you for a quote unquote compassion and empathy, then that's a pretty telling sign that you're, you're not being compassionate, you're being an enabler. Yeah. So Jesus came full of grace and truth. And Jesus loves you enough that he would die for you and he did die for you. But Jesus never backed down right. when he thought something was wrong. He was never afraid to speak mm-hmm. up. In fact, one time he said to his own best friend, Peter, get behind me, Satan, yep. Yep. because Peter was, was out of line. And so we put him back in place. And yet still he had this this love for Peter. Mm-hmm. And even when Peter denied him, Jesus, after he rose from the grave, he was sure to restore Peter and to you know show yeah. Peter that he had forgiven him. And so... Uh, I think the line between compassion and enablement is, are you forfeiting the truth because you you don't want to forfeit the relationship? Like, do you not want to speak hard truth? Do you don't want to stand on hard truth? And that can be difficult because you can say, like, to a person, like, on their first offense, you're being toxic and, like, terminate their relationship. But that's not God's heart. God's heart is redemption. But there there comes a point where uh, the toxicness of that relationship, uh, it just there's only so much you can do on your side of that. And then you need to create distance and space so that if they can meet you halfway, then then that's where, where you can find reconciliation and health in your relationship with that person. Yeah, I think you put that really eloquently. <laughs> well, 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 thank you. Good work. Well, this has been fun. Thanks so much for your questions, everybody. You know, try to send some harder questions next time, right? <laughs> that's a joke. But we don't. We, we want easier questions. We want. Yeah, let me ask easier. you. Let me ask you a, a real softball question before we, we sign off. What is your favorite color? That's actually a hard question. Oh, well, that's a. It's not that simple. <laughs> it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Well, my favorite color is purple. Growing up, I would say that my favorite color was blue because I thought purple was a girl's color. And then I grew up and I said, I don't care. I like purple. That's my favorite color. You tell them. You let them all know. All right. Well, if you got more questions, we want to hear them. You can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. You can connect with us on Instagram. Send us a DM. Facebook, you can message us. We're on Twitter. I think we even have LinkedIn, but I don't think anyone follows on LinkedIn. I just We do have LinkedIn. Yeah. But, I mean, if you're there and you want to discover us there, shoot us a message. If you have our phone number, you can text us. And um, whatever way you get in touch with us, just make sure you ask us these hard questions so that we can wrestle over them and we can have that mailbag music again. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, herandhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you. 
So you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.